Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In our passage last week, Paul taught that one day Jesus would return from heaven and that his people would be caught up to meet him in the air. He said that believers who were dead at that time would be raised first, and that believers who were alive at that time would be caught up with them, and they would all meet the Lord together in the air. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says our bodies will be changed into glorified, imperishable bodies at that time. Paul didn't say when this would happen, just that it would happen. Last week, I pointed out numerous parallels between this passage and Jesus' teaching in the book of Matthew. For example, in Matthew 4, 24, Jesus says that when he returns, it would be unexpected, like it was in the days of Noah. People just going about their business, not realizing that judgment was about to fall. One parallel I left out, however, is about how the catching up or the rapture. I told you how Jesus taught in Matthew 24 that he would gather together his elect. What I didn't mention is that Jesus describes that time saying, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. As in Noah's time, the ones left behind on earth are left for God's terrible judgment. But Jesus specifically says that no one knows when that will occur, not even the angels in heaven. The rapture could happen at any time. That brings us up to chapter 5, which begins with a continuation of this topic. Let's read verses 1 to 3. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Let's pray. Lord, I know that some of what I say this morning is going to be controversial and that we have different views on these things. Help us to agree, disagree, to disagree agreeably and to keep the main things the main things. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul says he has no need to write to them about times and dates because they know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. A thief doesn't announce his coming. You can't put it on your calendar. The thief could come suddenly at any time. The day of the Lord will come suddenly, like a thief or like labor pains. But what exactly is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is not just one day. It usually refers to a time period of terrible judgment by God. Joel 1.15 says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Isaiah 13 says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Some of the Old Testament references to the day of the Lord are referring to to 
terrible coming judgments near to the prophet's own time. For example, Isaiah is talking about the terrible judgment that occurred when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. But New Testament references to the day of the Lord are looking ahead to the time when Jesus returns. So, for example, 2 Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, when the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. In the New Testament, the day of the Lord is what we usually call the tribulation period. Now, let me just make something clear that I said last week. I do believe in a tribulation period. In fact, I think it will have a pretty definite beginning and a pretty definite end. It will begin with the public revealing of the Antichrist and will end with the very public revealing of Jesus Christ in power and glory. I just don't think there's very strong evidence that the tribulation period will be seven years long. It could be seven years, but it could be longer or it could be shorter. Anyway, about this time of tribulation, Paul writes in verse 4, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. Now, in the context, this day is the day of the Lord. The fact that believers should not be surprised when they see the beginning of this terrible day of the Lord may imply that believers will indeed still be here on earth when it begins. So Paul warns the believers how they should prepare for this possibility in verses 5 to 7. You are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Now in this passage, those who sleep or are drunk, stand for unbelievers. They are like the people in Noah's day, who are just going about their daily business with little or no thought of God. They are asleep at the switch when judgment suddenly falls. And Paul warns believers not to be asleep like that. In verse 8 he says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and hope of salvation as a helmet. Like a soldier prepared for battle, our deep faith commitment to Jesus Christ, as well as our love for him and for our neighbors, is like a soldier's breastplate and helmet, which protect the vital organs. So while the day of the Lord may come as a terrible surprise to unbelievers, believers should not be surprised. It should not catch us sleeping. I think Paul gets the illustration of sleeping from a parable Jesus taught about the end times. In Matthew 25, Jesus told a story about ten bridesmaids who were waiting to meet the groom as he returned for his bride. In that culture, after being away for a long betrothal period, the groom would come back unexpectedly to marry his bride. And while waiting, the bridesmaids in this story became drowsy and fell asleep. Around midnight, the watchman called out, the groom is coming. The bridesmaid woke up and grabbed their oil lamps for light as they went out into the night to welcome the groom. The problem was that five of the bridesmaids were unprepared. 
They had no oil for their lamps. Instead of sleeping, they should have been preparing by getting oil for their lamps. The result was that the five bridesmaids who were prepared entered into the wedding banquet to celebrate with the bride and groom, while the five who were unprepared were shut out. Jesus ends this parable in Matthew 25 with the lesson, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. That is, the day or the hour of Jesus' return. For both Jesus and Paul, those who are sleeping are like those who are unprepared. Like those in Noah's day, they go about their lives giving little or no thought to God, completely unaware that terrible judgment is about to fall. Now, verse 9 is a key passage for those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. That is the idea that Jesus will rapture believers before the tribulation period. Verse 9 says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Bible teachers who believe that the rapture comes before the tribulation period think that the word wrath in this verse refers to the day of the Lord. They interpret this to mean God has not appointed us to go through the wrath of the tribulation period. And they may be right. In fact, they have context on their side. After all, this whole passage is about the day of the Lord, which could be the wrath Paul is talking about. On the other hand, even Bible teachers who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture point out that the book of Revelation seems to portray the first three and a half years of Revelation, or the, of the, the rapture, of the tribulation, the first half of the tribulation, as relatively uneventful. The full fury and wrath will not occur until the last half of the tribulation, what the book of Revelation describes as the trumpet and bowl judgments. So when Paul says we are not appointed to wrath, that doesn't necessarily mean we will be raptured before the tribulation begins. It may just mean that God will rapture his church sometime before the trumpet or bold judgments, which are the really terrible judgments of the book of Revelation, when God's full fury and wrath are poured out. Now, personally, I don't really fit a pre-trib or post-trib box. I think the rapture could happen at any time before or during the tribulation period. But there are godly scholars on all sides of this issue. The one thing we can be sure of is that Jesus is coming back and that he could come at any time. But what difference does all this make? Well, one practical aspect from my perspective is this. Post-tribulationalists, those who think the they're the ones who are convinced that we must go through the entire tribulation period before the rapture takes place. I would caution them that they could be wrong. They should be prepared in case Jesus comes back at any time. Similarly, I would caution my pre-tribulation friends. You don't think you will be around when the Antichrist is revealed and the tribulation begins. But you could be wrong too. Don't let the day of the Lord surprise you like a thief just because you were absolutely convinced that the rapture would happen first. Don't misrecognize the Antichrist 
because you think the rapture will happen first. We should be mentally prepared for the possibility that we will enter the day of the Lord or tribulation period so that it doesn't surprise us like a thief in the night. Of course, my rapture, my rapture views might be wrong too, except that I'm quite sure that Jesus could come back for us at any time. Anyway, this whole rapture day of the Lord issue came up because the Thessalonians were under severe persecution and some people were saying that the day of the Lord or tribulation period had already begun and that their loved ones who had died missed the coming of the Lord. And Paul says, no, the day of the Lord had not yet begun and their dead loved ones who were believers would be raptured too. In verses 10 and 11, Paul tells the Thessalonians to encourage and build each other up in this teaching. I think they are to encourage each other to be prepared for Jesus' coming so we will not be ashamed of ourselves when we meet him. I think we are to encourage each other to stand strong as times get harder and harder or in case we see the beginning of the tribulation period. Paul then closes this letter in verses 12 to 28 with several admonitions. The first one in verse 12 to 13 is to respect your spiritual leaders. This may include pastors or deacons or missionaries or others who are leaders in the Lord's work. Paul says, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in highest regard in love because of their work. Second, Paul says in verse 13, to live in peace with each other. In other words, strive to get along. Paul will later write in Romans 12, 18, as much as lies within you, be at peace with all men. In fact, Paul says in verse 14, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. I'm thinking right now of a church that has a long history of disruptive, idle, busybodies. And the church has tolerated that behavior, which has led to nothing but a long history of trouble. Paul says to warn those who are idle and disruptive. On the other hand, Paul also says in verse 14 and 15, to encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. I recently read a book by a white man who married an Indian back in the 1800s and went to live in her tribe. Most of the tribe members eventually came to accept him as one of their own, even honoring him as a great hunter and warrior. But there was one brave who refused to accept him and would sometimes publicly insult him. In fact, the two of them once got into a physical fight. The white guy won. Sometime later, the white man received the honor of leading the warriors in the next buffalo hunting expedition. This was considered a great honor in that tribe. But for some reason I don't remember, the white man declined the honor. Instead, he publicly praised his enemy as a worthy hunter and warrior, warrior and suggested that the honor be bestowed on his enemy instead. The whole tribe was shocked, especially the enemy. But by refusing to pay back wrong for wrong, this man turned his enemy into his friend. In verse 15, Paul says, 
make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other. In verses 16 to 18, Paul says, Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. When Paul says, Rejoice always, I don't think he intends us to take that 100% literally. In other words, you just get word that a loved one has been killed in a car accident. I don't think Paul is saying you should rejoice about that. After all, in Romans 12, 15, Paul says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, but weep with those who weep. There is a time for weeping. I think Paul is saying that regardless of circumstances in our life, our life should generally be one of rejoicing. In other words, try not to be an Eeyore Christian. Similarly, when Paul says to pray continually, most people recognize that this is impossible to take literally. So some people say, well, we should be in a continual attitude of prayer. I'm not really sure what that is, but I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I think Paul's just saying that prayer should be a regular part of the Christian's life and as natural as talking to a friend because that's what it is. When Paul says in verse 18 to give thanks in all circumstances, I could be wrong, but I can't think of a single place in the Bible that says to give thanks for all circumstances. But even in the midst of pain and loss, you can still give thanks and rejoice for the blessings God has given you. In verses 19 to 22, Paul writes, Do not quench the spirit. Do not not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Our charismatic friends think God is still giving personal prophecies or revelations today. In fact, some people seem to think that every random thought, feeling, or inclination they have is the Holy Spirit talking to them. Those who believe that risk thinking that their own thoughts or feelings are God telling them something, and I think that's dangerous. On the other hand, I wouldn't want to limit the Holy Spirit either. He can and does still speak today. But I think he most often speaks through his word. Prophecies today are mostly the powerful proclamation and application of his word. Don't automatically despise or reject these. But on the other hand, Paul says in verse 20, to test them all. In other words, use discernment. Pastors can be wrong. Verses 23 and 24, Paul writes, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Some translations say, May God sanctify you wholly or completely. And some theologians believe that this teaches that Christians can and should become sinlessly perfect in this life. And I think that depends on how we look at sin. There are some passages in the Bible that seem to look at sin as any falling short of God's perfect standard. So in that sense, we will never be sinlessly perfect this side of heaven. But other contexts seem to look at sin as lawlessness or willful transgression against a known law of God. 
In other words, deliberately doing what you know is displeasing to God. We see this sense especially in 1 John. We should all strive never to deliberately disobey God. And I think that is the sense in which we should strive to be blameless and sanctified holy or through and through. Paul closes in verses 25 to 28, asking for prayer, telling them to greet each other and to make sure this pet letter is read publicly, which is what we do as I go through Paul's letters verse by verse. So in summary, don't be like unbelievers who are asleep at the switch. Be prepared for the terrible day of the Lord or for Jesus coming, whichever comes first. But how do we prepare? In verses 12 to 28, Paul says to avoid every kind of evil. In fact, never return wrong for wrong. Warn those who are disruptive and just like to stir up trouble. Instead, encourage each other. Be patient with each other. Rejoice. Pray. Give thanks. Consider prophecies or prophetic sermons seriously, but use discernment. Pastors can be wrong. And in this sermon, I suspect some of you are thinking, amen to that. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, whether you come for us in the rapture or come for us in death, impress our hearts with the importance of living in light of your sudden coming. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.